Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. And let me welcome you to the seventh anniversary celebration of Redemption Hill Church. That's right. We can get excited about that because we can get excited about God and his work uh, in us and through us. So uh, I want to invite our kids. They're already making their way. They're just so smart and advanced. Uh, They're already making their way up to Redemption Kids. So kids have an awesome morning up there. And I'd like to invite the rest of you to open your copy of God's life-giving word to the book of Matthew. Okay, that's the first book in the New Testament. We'll be in uh, chapter 5, verse 13 this morning. Chapter 5, verse 13. And we're continuing our series, The New Normal. And this morning I want to speak about inevitable influence. All right? Inevitable influence. You see, as we think about where we are, We have to look back and remember from where God has brought us. And one of the things that God has been teaching me this year is that, you know, for those of you that know me, I'm Pastor Tanner, Tanner Turley, lead pastor of Redemption Church. That means that I get charged with the opportunity and responsibility of speaking most weeks, not every week, because we're a team. Uh, and, and, and I also get charged with, with kind of looking ahead and envisioning out, and then I bring that to the elders, or I listen as they have ideas, and, and we work together, but, but it's just God has wired me to look ahead and to dream ahead and to have vision for, wow, God is, is growing this, this people known as Redemption Hill, and, and the fun has just begun. We're only scratching the surface of, of who we are in Christ and what God wants to do in us and through us. And so I'm usually just thinking ahead about the next year or the next five years, or the next seven years. And yet one of the, the graces of God to me this year has been to learn to slow down a little bit. And it's been uh, the grace of God that has led me to stop and pause and say thank you much, much more often probably than I did in the first six years of our existence as Redemption Hill. And part of this has flowed from just reading the Old Testament. And and God is constantly saying in those first 39 books of the Bible, he's saying, remember, 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 remember. And there was a practice, an ancient practice of uh, the people who, who knew God and followed God uh, to, to take a stone, and they would, they would set up a stone. This stone is out of my yard. This is a Medford stone. And this stone, I mean, I haven't been working out, but this stone isn't light, okay? So as Pastor Tan's going to get a workout in today. So this, they would take a stone, and they would set it up as a reminder to everyone and to themselves that God brought them this far, that God was doing the work. Jacob, in Genesis 28, when he had this face-to-face meeting with with God, he was surprised by God. He says, he, he puts up a stone and he called it Bethel, and he says Bethel in Hebrew means This is the the house of God, the place of God. God is in this place, and so he set up a stone. The people of Israel, uh, out out of slavery in Egypt, after they crossed over the Jordan River, it says that they set up 12 stones. One for each of the tribes of Israel as as a testimony, as a witness, as a way of saying with a visible picture, God did this work. God has brought us this far. God has brought us out of our our, our despicable and, and horrible place where we were oppressed. 
And now he has brought us into a land of redemption. And then in 1 Samuel 7, this is where it just really drives home for me. Um, the, the prophet Samuel, uh, he was God's spokesman to the people of Israel in that day. And, and the, the Philistines were coming against Israel. And uh, the Israelites just had no hope of victory in this, in this moment. But Samuel cries out to God and God says, look, I'm going to take care of you. I'm even going to fight for you. And so after God brings victory, Samuel takes a stone and he, he sets it up and he calls that stone Ebenezer. And that's, if you, you translate that out in the Hebrew, it means stone of help. And he says, for God has brought us this far. It's a stone of help. And so I've just tried this year, and if you looked at my journal, I'm trying to journal almost every day, and as, a, as you look in my journal, you would see this little, I'm no artist, I almost tried to PowerPoint it for you, but it would have been a little sad, right? Uh, but there's this stick figure uh, with, a, with a, a, a head, okay, and, and then arms that are going up, just like, you know what I'm saying? Anybody stick figure artist? And, um, and then a stone right there, just a little stone, just like, God, thank you. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for how you answered that prayer. Thank you for how you're changing me, a man who is in need of constant change. So I just wanted this morning, as we reflect on this seventh anniversary, I want to raise up a few stones. Because you see, back in 2009, God put a dream in, in my heart, even before that, and he was starting to bring a team together of, of people, three families, and, and a single uh, woman who decided to move to Boston. And you see, one thing about Boston, in that time, conventional wisdom said, like, this is not the place you want to go to start a church. In fact, Boston had a reputation for being, like, a, someone who starts churches. They're called church planters, like planting something to watch it grow, right? So it was called a church planter's graveyard. And this shouldn't surprise us, right, because... If we drive around the city, we would see how many churches that have become businesses and condos and whatever else. And so people are saying, like, you're crazy. Don't, don't go to Boston. Like, it's not, you're not going to have success. You're not, you're not gonna, nothing's going to happen there. And yet we just trusted God and believed God and, and sensed the, the calling of God to come and to, to be a light in this city and to point people to Jesus Christ. And so... In our first year, on April 10th of 2011, we started our Sunday services, and we met at this building known as Spring Step. It's right by City Hall in Medford Square. And one thing about that, that whole journey, that first year, not only were we just getting acclimated and meeting people and inviting them into our small groups and, and learning how to serve our city, uh, but we also were looking for space. And you know, it's tough to find an apartment here to live. It's tough to find a place to meet as a group of people, like a church. And so what you need to know about Spring Step, uh, if you can throw the Spring Step uh, building up, um, Spring Step, some other people told us like, hey, listen, um, they've told people that they would never rent to a church. And so you know what we just said, you know what, they haven't told us that, so we're going to call, and sure enough, God opened the door for us to be able to meet there, and it was a great uh, first two and a half years of our experience, God began to answer our prayers. We've always said we want to be a thumbprint of our community. And so even from the earliest days, it was amazing to see the ethnic diversity of this little group of people known as Redemption Hill represent the ethnic diversity of Medford and the surrounding cities. 
And you can imagine all these little kids, they're now in Redemption Kids. We, we had a meeting downstairs in the orange room. You could see the orange room in the picture. And then we were upstairs meeting in Hawkins Hall. And so God started to build something there in those days. And uh, then sadly, Springstep had to sell their building. And so we were looking at each other like, now, now what? Like, what are we going to do? And so we started to, to, to think about different options. And, and before we could even go to ask them, I love this. Lindsay Smith is in the house today. She's the executive director of the Boys and Girls Club. Uh, the Boys and Girls Club, because Redemption Hill had been serving at the club and partnering uh, with them and providing volunteers and beautifying their space, uh, they said, hey, we, we heard what's going on. Do you need a space? I mean, before we could even ask, they put their yes on the table. And so we transitioned to, check this picture out. You remember the double screens? Anybody remember the double? Who, who let, me, let me do this. This is fun. Who was here for the spring step days? Just raise your hand. All right, look around. Not a ton, but several. That's awesome. Okay, who started coming to Redemption Hill when we were at the club? Anybody? That's a lot. Okay, very cool. And so we, we, we saw God at that point, in that season, start to grow the church, and more and more people were coming, almost to the point that, that we were maxing out the gym, and of course, the kids running around in the cl- classrooms, and it was a, a great season of growth, a great season of investing in young leaders. Some of our interns from that season are serving in churches around the country and even around the world. So that was our Boys and Girls Club season, and as we were growing in that space, we say, you know what, we kind of need more space, and God opened a door for us to move upstairs to the Chevalier Theater. And so the Chevalier was another great season, another two and a half years of, of growing as a church and, and really becoming more established with some of the stuff that's, that's maybe not as beautiful but absolutely necessary systems and processes and just getting things in order, and yet on top of that becoming increasingly local and increasingly diverse not just ethnically, but generationally. And across the board, we're seeing God at work answering prayer. Until now, just this past March, God has brought us to the high school. And this year, if you ask like Tanner, what, like, how would you summarize the last year of, 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 of your church? Like, what, what reasons do you have to now raise up stones and say, like, God has helped us this year. God has brought us this far. What would you say? And I would say that God is, is bringing not only new people, because I know you can look around the room and it's like, man, this is, is packed and there's so many people that are coming and it's exciting. And of course, we love that and we want to connect with more and more people. But it's not just about people. It's about the provision of God. We, we now have a community center for the first time, like a hub to operate ministry out of, gather for groups and prayer throughout the week. We have this new space on Sunday. We're seeing uh, people, new, new people connecting with groups, serving with teams, new people saying, hey, I want to follow Jesus, being baptized. It's been a great year of God's provision. And yet, as, as we think about all of these works over the past seven years, what I love the most as a pastor and one of the leaders here is that I have the privilege of getting to know you. And I know that each one of your individual stories, however imperfect and at times broken, just like my own story, you have your own story of God's faithfulness. You have your own stories of of, of saying, God has helped me. God has brought me through that difficult time. God is bringing his change to me that's being evidenced in 
persevering through difficult relationships or difficult work situations, or he's, he's empowering me to, to, to live a life that's reflective of Jesus so it's helpful to the people around me. There, there are hundreds of stories that can be multiplied again and again and again, and that's what I love about, like a church is not a building. We like help people understand that all the time because we don't own our own building, right? But a church is a people who have experienced God's grace, and so we all have these stories to contribute to say, wow, God, look at what you've done. This is, this is your work. And so this morning as we celebrate seven years, I love that we're in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. This is magnum opus. It's his most famous sermon, his most longest recorded sermon in the Bible from Jesus. And he's teaching us about what life is like in his kingdom what it means to follow him. And I would just say that like behind every stone, he's like, what's behind every stone that, uh, that, that we raise up and say, God has helped us this far? It's the fact that, that we are simply following Jesus, seeking to live the life that he has called us to live. That's what Matthew 13 5, 13 through 16 is all about. I just want to read them for us. You can follow along your Bible. You can listen closely as I read them for us. But this is what Jesus says there. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. If there's been anything good about Redemption Hill Church, and I would argue if there's been anything good about our individual lives, it's because God has been at work in us to bring the change that he wants to bring in us and through us to others around us. And so I think we can summarize what Jesus is is trying to get at here to say this, Jesus in you will bring inevitable influence to those around you. All right, don't don't miss that. Jesus in you will bring inevitable influence to those around you. That's what Jesus is getting at here as he essentially concludes the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. I want us to think about what it would look like to live a life of inevitable influence. And if if we're living a life of influence, it means that we have the capacity to be a compelling force to those around us. That, that, That through our lives, we can affect the culture and the outcomes and the people around us. And I think deep down, it's like if I were just to like take a poll and everyone's given an honest answer, like, you know, do you want to live a life of influence? 
I'm just pretty sure like everyone's checking the yes box. You know what I'm saying? Like, like we all want to make a difference in our world. We all want to live a life that is meaningful and that is helpful to the people around us. And yet the question is like, if we all long for that, then how can we experience that? How can we see that happen in our lives? And so Jesus here is laying it out for us. If we ask the how question, it's because Jesus is in us. So, so, so we, we, we can't like, by the way, if you're new to the Bible, here's one of the kind of temptations that people, like a lot of times people like take the Bible and they make it say what they want it to say rather than what it actually says. You know what I'm saying? Um, so this is how we come up with all different kind of, you know, opinions and ideas that like God is on everyone's side and like God is actually on his own side and we're supposed to get on his side. That's kind of how it works. But um, so, so, so one of the things that we do though and how we get there is that we, what I call sometimes atomizing the text. You know, like, like we just take this piece in isolation from this piece, and, and, but we can't do that and we certainly should not do that with the Sermon on the Mount. You see, when Jesus begins in verse 1, it says, seeing the crowds went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and then he gets into these words of blessing. Um, This follows what just happened in chapter 4. So so we can't divorce chapter 5 from chapter 4. And the two verses that really key us into what Jesus is about to say in the Sermon on the Mount are in verse 17 and verse 19. Verse 17, Jesus says, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's near. It's coming. It's in your midst. And so what what he's saying is, pay attention and be ready to change your mindset and let me change your heart so that you can step in to the life that God wants for you so that you can be a part of my kingdom. And then in verse 19, he makes it even more explicit and he says, follow me and I will, he's speaking to fishermen, okay, this is why he says this analogy, he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So everything that Jesus teaches his disciples in chapters 5, 6, and 7 is predicated, is built on what he has just said about, hey, the kingdom is near, follow me. And so if we're going to live a life of inevitable influence, it first begins by by Jesus simply being in us us turning our life over to to God through Christ and saying, God, like, I need you. I just need you in my life. My life is not not, uh, satisfying without you. I I, I need you in my life. I want to live for you. And so if we're going to live this life of inevitable influence, to be salt and to be light, it is actually built on what Jesus just said in verses 3 through 10, 3 through 12. Let me explain. Jesus, he opens his mouth and he taught them, and and these were his first words, words of blessing, how encouraging that Jesus wants to encourage us and bless us, shine his favor on us. He says this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To be poor in spirit is to see our need before God, is to come with empty hands saying, God, I need you. I don't have the resources in and of myself. I need you to fill my life. And then he goes on, he says, blessed are those who mourn, who mourn over their situation and their imperfections and sin, that they would come to God. Blessed are those who meet who are meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are those who are pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so all of this, Jesus is saying, it's your character, who you are, that is most important. And if you let me fill your life from the inside out, this is how you position yourself to live a life of influence. 
It's the character of Christ being built in us. And so just to make it very plain, like if we are increasingly poor in spirit, if we're increasingly mournful over our own sin and the sin of those around us, if we're increasingly meek toward others and hungering for what is right and pure in our hearts and peaceable in our relationships, then Jesus is saying, if this is increasingly true of you, then you're going to be increasingly salty and shine all the brighter as you live your life under my influence. So what we need to see is this, that, that Jesus is saying being, okay, who we are, leads to our doing, how we live. And I hope you know this, or I hope you know this, if you've been around Redemption Health for very long. Like, we're a church that's active, we're a church that's serving, all right, whether it's from a Sunday to one of our Serve Medford events and all of the great things that God has led us to do across the state. We're very active. We think that the life of Christ is an active life. But who we are before God is more important than what we do for God. And, and I just want you to hear that. Like, it, our, people who serve, who are on a team, who, who are leading groups, who are, who are pouring their life out, like, who you, we care more about who you are than what you do. And this is how the Christian life works. In fact, if you, like, do not, if you miss this in chapter 5, Hopefully, if you're paying attention, you'll get it in chapter 6. And you'll get it in chapter 7. Like the whole Sermon on the Mount is pressing in below the surface. And God is saying, look, I care about your heart. It's your heart. It's not that the external actions and the formality if the motivations aren't right and your heart isn't right before me. And so how do we get there? It's first because Jesus is in us. Jesus is in you. And what are we going after as, as we share? Jesus in you will bring inevitable influence through you. That's what we're after. And Jesus uses two metaphors to drive this home, okay? First, he says you are, again, focused on being, right? You are the salt of the earth. And like, if you go and read scholars on Matthew 5, you would probably get like 12 different uses for salt and how valuable salt is. And, and listen, some, we, we need to pay attention to that, right, as we think about this metaphor, okay? Um, salt can serve as a preservative, right? So, so uh, in, the, in the first century, they didn't have these awesome things known as refrigerators, right? So like, if, if, if meat was to be preserved, they had to load it up with salt, so that the meat would be preserved, so it would last. And so salt has a preservative uh, influence. And, and as Jesus is perhaps saying that, that as you're salt in the world, you, you preserve what is good, right, and true wherever you are. It's, it's like, uh, you know, maybe traveling into Medford Square. And uh, if you haven't heard now, you know that we have the best donut shop in the city of Boston, all right? It's called Donuts with a Difference. Um, delicious donuts. And uh, sometimes my kids, they talk me into going donut, to get donuts for them, not that I would ever go for myself, uh, but just to go for them and to get them a, a dozen and a half donuts, you know, because they can eat that many. Um, and what happens when I go, everything is beautiful and wonderful until I walk past my friend Ninja's, this is his name, by the way, Ninja's, Dojo Extreme Ninja Martial Arts. 
You ever done this? And you just like see everyone in there breaking a sweat, working out, kickboxing, you know, working on their skills. And, and what happens? It's like a preservative in my life. You know what I'm saying? It's like, yo, you only need two donuts, maybe one. Don't get the dozen and a half. Salt functions as a preservative. It, it also functions as uh, a valuable commodity. Did you know that Roman soldiers were often paid in salt? It, was so, it had so many uses that, that they were often paid. It, it can serve as a cleansing agent to, to cleanse uh, someone's body or, or perhaps a wound um, in that day. And then, and then also salt, of course, uh, can add flavor. Right? So perhaps you, you're, you're, you're a salt lover. You just have to put salt on all of your food. And, and, and Jesus even hints at that uh, analogy. He says, uh, if salt loses its taste, it's, it's no longer good for anything. But listen, amidst all the possibilities of, of the uses of salt, preservative and, and cleansing agent and, and, and taste and, and, and valuable, like, amidst all the possibilities, I think we can miss the point. What Jesus is saying is this. He's saying, if you follow me, then make sure you continue to live like it and increasingly represent and reflect me with your life. Because if you don't, you're not going to be effective and useful in my kingdom. So this, this salt analogy is really a warning against nominal Christianity. And what nominal Christianity is, Christianity, being a Christian in name only. So if I just make it crystal clear today, like nominal Christianity is an oxymoron, okay? It is actually an impossibility. There is no such thing as nominal Christianity. Christianity must get below the surface and hit our heart and change our heart in such a way that we actually represent Jesus wherever we are. That's what this is about. This is what Jesus is saying. That's that's the point that he's making. Live out, like if you're not living like a follower of Jesus and talking like and acting like a follower of Jesus, then something is off and you are not going to be as useful as you can be in my kingdom. That's the salt metaphor. What about the light metaphor? In a similar fashion, light can, can refer to, in, in the scriptures, it can refer to truth, it can refer to purity, it can refer to light. And we say, like, well, how can we be light? It's, it's only as we are connected, not by virtue of our own merit, but as we're connected to Christ, who him, himself says, I am the light of the world. So, so, so our job is not like, Produce this light in and of ourselves to shine for others to see, but it's to receive the light of Christ and to shine forth his light wherever he places us. And Jesus says what this looks like as he goes on in verse uh, 16, he says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. See, we shine light by living a life of good works. This is all throughout the Bible. Like When we come to truly know God and to be changed by God, then the natural consequence, the inevitable consequence, is that we will live a life of good works. 
And this, this idea of good works, like sometimes we like put the extreme measure on it. And it's like if we just like sacrifice all we have and give to the poor, then, then that's what a good work is. And yes, that's certainly a good work. But, but a good work can be anything we do in faith. Any, any kind gesture towards someone else, any giving of ourselves for the benefit of someone else is a good work. And so God is saying, look, devote yourself to good works. Like, let your whole life be a life of good works. At the end of the resurrection chapter in 1 Corinthians 15, as Paul's uh, talking about the resurrection of Jesus and the difference that it makes in our lives, he, he says at the very end of that, therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Your works. In Titus chapter 2, he, he says to be zealous for good works. To make your life that, that it is constantly pouring out for the sake of others, that people would see Christ in you as you live a life that is not about yourself, but is about, first and foremost, God, and secondarily about other people around you. Wow. How countercultural is that? How, how, how unnatural to the natural state of our heart is that? And so as John Wesley said, I love this, this quote a leader from, uh, in the church from several centuries ago, he says this about our good works. He says, do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, to all the people you can, as long as you ever can. We devote ourselves to good works. This is how we shine the light of Christ. And so our number one job as Christians is to shine forth Jesus with our actions as well as one of our actions actually is our words. You know what I'm saying? And so what what Jesus is saying is like, let your light shine. Your job is to light up the world with the light of Christ. Can I get an amen? Are we, are, we, are we with me today? Thank you. That was good, all right? And it's not because God said it, it's because it is true, right? Like we light up the world with the light of Christ. And so that's what Jesus is saying. Look, like it's, it's nonsense. If I can just like summarize you, like it's nonsense to, to, to be a city on a hill and not be visible, right? Like you put a city on a hill so it's visible, so you can look out, so others can, can see as it's lit up. It's nonsense to light a lamp and then cover it up. The very purpose of a light is to shine, to help everyone see in the house. And Jesus is saying, this is, this is why you exist. This is what you're here for, to shine the light of Christ, to live with inevitable influence, to, to, to have such a, a compelling force uh, from, from Christ in you, overflowing. This is why our vision for this year is the fullness of God in us, overflowing through us, that if we would just, listen, if we would just be a people who keep living out the Beatitudes, poor in spirit, mourning, hungry and thirsty for rises, peaceable, pure in heart, like this, we're just like becoming more like Jesus, we cannot help but overflow and to shine. If you want more out of your life, if you want to make a greater difference, just keep coming to Christ and allowing him to fill you and to change you and to turn up, you know, a dimmer switch, like just turn up that dimmer switch again and again and again, more and more notches until you're shining as bright as you possibly can.
how we do so is because Jesus is in us. What we're after is inevitable influence. Where we're, we're, we're influencing is, is obvious in this, this uh, text, right? It's like everywhere. Like, like God, like, there, there's never a time when we turn it off. You know what I'm saying? Like, he says, you are the salt of the earth. The earth. Like you've, you've seen it from outer space, like the whole earth. You are the light of the world. And so what Jesus is doing, I love, is like the ultimate greater to the lesser argument. He's saying like, if I'm saying you're the, light, the salt of the earth and you're the light of the world, then that just covers like every moment of every day of your existence. And this is what we love about Christianity. This is what we love about the life of, of Jesus that he invites us into. Is, is that it's not like a Sunday morning thing and it's not just like when we go to a Bible study or we pray at night. It's for every second of every day. Jesus wants to be, us to be increasingly salty. He wants us to shine all the brighter so that as we operate in our homes and in our schools and in our workplaces and as we're going from here to there in all of our relationships, we are influencing, listen, we are influencing all of them, all of them. So I just want to ask you this morning as we think about God's work in us and where God has not only brought us this far, but where he is taking us into the future, how salty is your life? How how brilliantly is your light shining forth? Are you living this life of inevitable influence? This is what God desires for each one of us. And, and, and the ultimate goal, the ultimate goal in all of this, the, the why behind the what of Jesus' words and, and his encouragement to live as salt and light, okay, is that other people would see. They would see our good works, and they wouldn't come to us and say, oh, wow, look how lit up you are. You're so amazing. Wow, I want to just be like you because you are, are, are so, uh, you know, just influential, all right, he's, he's saying, look, as people see you, then they're going to understand that there is something greater than you in you. And they're going to discover from your life and from your words that you are who you are by the grace of God. And that the, the light within you is the light of Christ. And, and so this is not about our name, it is all about the fame of his name. As we celebrate seven years, as we celebrate God's call in our life, this is about us reflecting who he is so that more and more and more and more people might join in on the satisfying, joy-producing, peace-giving life of Christ through our simple everyday representation of Jesus wherever we are. And so just to conclude this morning, I just want to put this before us. And I love this. I love it. Absolutely love it. I firmly believe, I firmly believe that the next seven years 
of the people known as Redemption Hill Church will be much, much greater than the first seven years. And why do I believe that? Is that just because like, I'm an optimist? Is that just because like, the Bible seems like, to, like, hey, you can have hope and you can have faith? And you can like, of course, yes. But also as we think about this inevitable influence, one of the, one of the, the lessons of the metaphor of the story is, is this, that density equals intensity. Density equals, like, are you following me? As we grow as a church, as, as more and more people are shining the light of Christ, and there is a greater density of light, then that light will shine forth in a more intense fashion so that more and more people are compelled by what they see and so if you've seen a, 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 a light map, it shows, like, we can just see the, the cities of, of, of North America just shine because, because density leads to a greater intensity. And as we collectively, listen, as we collectively walk with God as individual people, but not just individual people, as a community that is encouraging one another and praying for one another and serving one another and serving together the people around us, listen, then then what we're going to have opportunity to do is this. God, look at what you've done. Let us raise up another stone. Let us raise up another stone of hope. Let us say God has brought us this far again, all for the glory of his name. Let's pray together. So, Father, thank you. Thank you for giving us Christ. Thank you for making us your light. And, God, we we, we say thank you for all that you've done in our church, all that you've done through our church. We have countless reasons to celebrate how far you have brought us and what you've done in us. And God, yet we pray, Lord, that you would do more and more and more. That you would help us to walk so closely with you, receiving your light that that we can't help but shine. It's just a natural consequence of what you're up to in our lives. We want our relationships and and our church and our city and all of, all of, of, of where you place us, God. We want to be people of influence. Not so that people can say that we're great, but, but so they can discover how great you are. And so, God, would you make these next seven years even greater for the glory of your name. Thank you for each person in this church. Thank you for each person that's here today. God, continue your good work in us that others might come to know you through us. We pray in the name of Christ.